Well, let me uh, quickly review with you and, and give a little bit of introduction before we read the text together. Um, the, the rest of the chapter, Paul's going to talk about uh, this history that pertains to the defense of his apostleship. Okay? And I think what an awkward position to uh, defend your own authority. That's a hard place to be in, isn't it? Uh, it's like uh, a pastor having to teach the text on um, why it's biblical for him to be paid. <laughs> it just feels so strange, you know? And uh, so, as we know, though, this is the second time, at least in the scriptures, where Paul is put in this position where uh, his authority has been placed in doubt, and, uh, which makes his word to them, uh, void of authority. And so now he has to uh, defend it. And the way he's going to do that is by telling the Galatians a story. And so I want to retell that story to you and then throw more of the details into it from the book of Acts and, uh, so that we can keep track of the timelines, the chronology of events as well, so that we don't read it and we're like, well, why does, why does that make any sense, Paul? And um, so we want to do that. We want to keep in the context of the letter. We know that these bad men, um, uh, known as the Judaizers, they've come to Galatia after Paul. And, uh, and they are the ones that have been preaching this perverted gospel, saying that this is the true gospel, and that Paul, by the way, is a false apostle, and he preached to you a false gospel. And so now we have these dueling apostles, as it were, uh, in, in uh, these churches in the region of Galatia. And, uh, and so Paul is coming against all of that, this perverted gospel, these perverted apostles. And, and we, you remember the whole vibe appeared immediately in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, which we addressed a couple weeks ago. And in verse 1, Paul didn't, you know, really start with his usual salutation. Uh, you know, before he extended his typical greeting of grace and truth, he inserted this uh, parenthetical, we might say a jab, uh, regarding the nature of his apostleship. He opened up with Paul, an apostle. And then if you have the New King James, it's a parenthesis. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Okay. Instead of initially greeting everyone, he really puts his boxing gloves on and he comes out swinging. So why? It's because the Judaizers were saying that Paul was self-appointed. Okay. Self-appointed. Um, but Paul says, my authority has come directly from the top. From the top. Okay. And then in verse 8 and 9, uh, as we said, Paul, he throws the gloves off and he starts taking these bare-knuckle punches uh, at these Judaizers and he begins to call down curses from heaven on these men, saying that if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. And then he says, I say again, if anyone okay, shares with you another gospel that you received, let him be accursed. And uh, anybody that we might say preaches a distortion, a perversion of the true gospel, 
let that person be separated from God eternally is what Paul means. And, you know, if they didn't believe Paul had the authority to invoke a divine curse on those who would pervert the gospel, they should have consulted Elimus, the sorcerer. You remember the story, Acts 13. He, the, Elimus was trying to turn the proconsul away from the truth of the gospel, and then Paul blinded him. Yeah. And in that incident, it's interesting, Paul demonstrated that his authority was equal to the Apostle Peter's. Because the Apostle Peter did something very similar to that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. A couple had lied to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles and to the church. Now, they didn't fare as well as Elimus. Okay? They had to pack their carcasses out and, uh, and bury them. Crazy stuff. Yeah. And by the way, when Paul had Elimus blinded, it was actually the first recorded event of Paul exhibiting his apostolic authority in a miraculous way. Probably a nice uh, conversation piece for him and Barnabas, right? As they journeyed on. Yeah. You remember when Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he said that there were signs and miracles unique to an apostle. Apparently this was one of them. You know, calling divine curses uh, down from heaven is not listed among the gifts to the church. In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and, and 1 Peter chapter 4, this was something that was unique to this office. Okay, And... Uh, you don't want to be on the business end of one of those declarations. Um, and I think that all of that is, is, the reason for it is to communicate that the gospel of Christ is not something that can be toyed with, not by anyone. Because Paul does say, if one of us, or even an angel from heaven, preaches another gospel, let him be uh, led down into destruction, basically. It's dangerous stuff. So moving on in this final section of chapter 1, Paul is, as I said, he's telling this story, so it's a historical defense of the nature by which he received the gospel and the, the, the nature of his divine calling to uh, his apostleship. And uh, this defense will actually continue all the way into chapter 2 uh, to verse 14. So it's quite the history that Paul will share. We won't get into chapter 2, verse 14 today, uh, but I do want to get as far as we can. So if you're able, please stand. I'll, I'll be reading God's word to you out of the New King James Version. Again, it's Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through 24. So it's a pretty large section, especially for us at Calvary Chapel here. So... Paul says to the Galatians, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, 
being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, thank you for your word, and Lord, we know that History is important, and Paul's history is important. It's essential to um, the gospel and to the nature of his authority as an apostle. And I pray that the points would be made clear this morning, but that through this journey through Paul's history that we would be encouraged, and um, yeah, and in Paul's um, kind of being led astray, in Jerusalem, in his own thinking, uh, I pray that that would be applicable to us as we seek your direction and who it is that we would preach the gospel to. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Look again, if you would, verse 11 through 12. Let's get into Paul's defense. He says, But I make known to you, that's, I want you to understand something, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, because I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is an interesting statement, the way Paul brings that to us. And he's saying to them, it's important for them to understand that the the gospel that he preached is immediately connected uh, to his apostolic authority. Because the source from which he received the gospel was not from a mere man. That's not how it came to me. He didn't hear the gospel through uh, natural means, okay? Paul wasn't like the average Christian who heard the gospel from another Christian. Paul was among the apostles who... They heard the gospel directly from Jesus, but Paul was even a little different than the other apostles, okay, because he didn't walk with Jesus as they did for three and a half years, listening to him teach, watching him perform miracles, and exercise divine authority uh, in his teachings. Paul says that he received the gospel by way of revelation, apocalypsis. Well, we thought that was just for the book of Revelation. It's the same word. It means, means to unveil. It means to pull the curtain away. And whatever was previously hidden is now disclosed. Okay. Yeah. It's revelation. 
was disclosed to him miraculously, not didactically. He didn't, uh, we might say, he didn't learn the gospel or study its principles. That's kind of weird. It was more like software being downloaded to his psyche. How would you like that? College is done. <laughs> I know all of the Bible. Yeah. But I think that, you know, Paul receiving the gospel in that manner was good for his pride. We know from Paul's own confession that pride was a problem for him. And why wouldn't it be after the, you know, who he was as a Jew and, and where he came up and who his, his, uh, how he was selected as a Pharisee and who was his rabbi and, and all of his learning and all of this stuff. It's good that Paul didn't have the gospel as a product of his learning, this Bible scholar. You know, imagine if Paul had by himself been studying the Old Testament scriptures correctly and then rendered or deduced the Gospels from them. What would have happened to that man's head? No capa would fit on that thing. Okay? Capa's the little... Okay, whatever. <laughs> but he... Paul didn't, he didn't discover anything. That's crazy. He didn't discover the gospel. He didn't learn it from one of the apostles. It was disclosed miraculously. We call it divine revelation. And so in this, there's no claim to fame for Paul. And he couldn't handle that kind of stuff anyway. Okay. His, his calling was by the election of grace, that is, he didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, he did everything not to deserve it. Isn't that true? And instead, Jesus used Paul as an example that if he would save scum like Paul, he was willing to save anyone that would come to Christ through faith and repentance. Okay? Yeah, Paul didn't say, or Jesus didn't save Paul because Paul was some great scholar. And, uh, and really, if he was such a great scholar, why didn't he recognize Jesus as the Messiah? <laughs> yeah. After all, you know, Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy almost every day of his ministry. How could a good scholar not see that and recognize it? This is not something a good scholar misses. But, you know, Jesus doesn't need scholars anyway. He appointed fishermen and zealots. They're the worst to work with, zealots, especially if they're in their early 20s. Tax collectors, so why not call a PhD? And the truth is, you know, Jesus made an example out of Paul, right? It was a good example, and Paul thought it was great. He said, this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That is, I'm the worst. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And then he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's saying, If I can be used as an example, as a pattern. Glory be to God. Yeah. So the gospel, it's not taught to him by one of the other apostles of Christ. 
It was simply, I don't know if that's the right word, it was revealed to him. It was revealed. Now, something else that needs to be pointed out is that Paul, uh, when he uses the word gospel in this context, and quite often, many times when he uses the word gospel, uh, he means more than most Christians think. You see, when we think of the word gospel, we typically mean the message that is shared with unbelievers. That's typically what we think. That the only begotten Son of God took our sins upon himself and then he was punished for those sins on Calvary's cross and then he rose again from the dead the third day. Then if you as the sinner would place your trust in Jesus, you'd be forgiven of all sin and you would inherit eternal life. That is what comes to mind when most Christians think of the gospel. But that's not all of the gospel. That's not all that Paul had in mind uh, when he used the term gospel, which means good news. You see, that's the gospel message that leads to salvation, but trusting Christ for salvation just gets your foot in the door of the gospel. Aren't you glad? The good news is over once you come to Jesus. No, the good news just begins. You know, John 10.10, Jesus says, I, you know, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come to give you life through the gospel message and that you would have life more abundantly. Okay, that's beyond the message, amen? Yeah. You know, when I was first licensed by uh, Calvary Chapel Boise so that I could work in their prison ministry, they, they licensed me, and the license said that I was a minister of the gospel. That was pretty weird. Yeah, just so that I could be in these different groups. And, but I thought, I'm not an evangelist. It's not my calling. I'm going to be teaching the books of the Bible to ex-cons who are already believers. You see, I had the same mistaken idea or view of the gospel many other people have. But the license stated correctly that I would be ministering the gospel by teaching the books of the Bible. That's what a minister of the gospel is, teaching to believers. So when we talk about the gospel in its complete sense, understand that it consists of everything revealed in the new covenant. Everything revealed. Yeah. Don't you want all of it anyway? You do. Yeah. So the gospel is the message that leads someone to salvation, but it's also the instruction of how someone lives for Christ after they've been saved. So the, the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood, you guys, that's the good news. Okay, all that's there for us. Yeah, so it's the teaching and the principles of the new covenant. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul has in mind. And this is the gospel. It's all of the, the things contained in the new covenant. That's what was revealed to Paul. It was quite the download. Okay? Quite the download. All right, now let's look at Paul's testimony here. Verse 13, Paul says, For, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Now, as we discussed from... Uh, in verse 1 a few weeks ago, Paul was the greatest enemy of the church, at least until Emperor Nero, who began to slaughter Christians 
Yeah. For Paul's conversion to Christ, uh, we know that he was a young, zealous Pharisee who was determined to destroy Christianity. And, you know, Paul confessed to hunting down, imprisoning, torturing, and having Christians executed. Okay, so by all means available to him, he did all that he could to rid the planet of the Christian confession. Verse 14, Paul says, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul was the, really the, the perfect pharisaical student. Uh, we know from tradition that the rabbis handpicked their students and would take one student at a time. And Paul was picked by one of the greatest rabbis in Jewish history, a man named Gamaliel. Interesting detail. And he, Paul was really the best of both worlds in Judaism. He was the most scholarly and he was the most zealous. He was a practitioner of the worst kind. He was kind of like an inquisitor, if you will. To the Jews, he was the cream of the crop. And it's possible that if things didn't change for him, he may have been one of the greatest rabbis that ever lived. And we would have been reading his commentaries in the Talmud instead of the New Testament. Yeah. But it was all cut short, thankfully. Verse 15 and through 17, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I preached him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, that's people, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So you remember the story as Paul was on his way to arrest Jewish Christians in Damascus so that, he might, so that they might stand trial in Jerusalem. The risen, ascended, and glorified Christ interrupted his journey just outside the city. And, and instead of killing Paul, which he most certainly deserved, Jesus called him by his grace. Which, I mean, it had to be by his grace, didn't it? If, if there was no grace in the context, it would have just been his carcass laying in the road there. Okay. And he did this by his grace so that he could reveal Christ in Paul. And he says, in order to make him a messenger of the gospel to the Gentile world. But here's the point that Paul is making in his defense. He says, after my conversion, he says, I did not confer, I didn't consult any man concerning the truths of the gospel. Even though Cornelius laid hands on him and baptized him, Paul did not inquire him about the gospel. He didn't. Yeah. And neither did Paul, as we might expect, travel back to Jerusalem to consult the leaders of the church regarding the faith. Instead, Paul went into the desert. That is a strange place to go. I've been to the Arabian Desert. I don't want to go back. Okay. 
And what's inferred in all of this is that it's there in the desert, in this dry place, that Jesus revealed the gospel to him. Yeah. Yeah. As you can imagine, after all that had happened, Paul could use some time away, right? His world had just come to pieces. Everything. Nothing was as he thought it was. Everything was now out of its place, at least initially. Everything he had been raised for, all the traditions that he'd embraced and had hoped to uh, not just learn, but to instruct his people, zealous for his nation and the religion of his fathers. He needed some time. But then it was through divine revelation, it all came together bit by bit. Jesus was just putting all the pieces in their proper place. That's a transformation. And that's not an easy conversion, is it? To be so radically changed until the gospel is made plain to him. So Paul, we would say in agreement with Peter that like the prophets before him, he was moved along by the Holy Spirit that he might understand heavenly truths. Heavenly truths. Verse 18 and 19 Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, real quick, uh, what's meant by after three years? Uh, Where do we begin counting? Okay, it's to confuse a lot of people. When when we gather all of the, the information, the evidence together, Paul's talking about the three years after his conversion, when God called him, okay? So Paul meant that there were about three years from the time that he left Jerusalem as a Pharisee in about 37 AD until he returned to Jerusalem as a Christian in 40 AD. So it was three years after his conversion before he went to Jerusalem that he might meet the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he went to Jerusalem, he stayed with Peter for 15 days. Uh, No doubt they had a lot to talk about, right? Peter was reluctant to meet with Paul, by the way. Okay. But they had to talk about Paul's past, I'm sure his conversion, and the gospel as it had come directly to Paul. I imagine that in those conversations there was some difficult moments as well as they discussed the afflictions of the church over the last five years or so, the believers that Paul had executed were Peter's friends. Peter's friends. And I would say, whom Paul, with trembling lips and many tears, by this time would call them his brothers and sisters. Yeah. I think Paul certainly had some dark memories that required some healing and the forgiveness that's in Christ But in spite of all that, Peter extended, you know, the right hand of fellowship to Paul. That's important. But more importantly, Peter recognized the apostolic calling in Paul's life. Look, the New Testament makes it clear that Peter was the chief apostle. And if anyone was going to at least initially recognize Paul's apostleship, it really needed to be Peter. 
needed to be Peter. And this was made very, I think, intimately clear in 2 Peter 3, 13 through 16. In that text, you know, Peter has been addressing all of the details that lead up to what we call the eternal state. And he said this about Paul in his writings. Please listen carefully. He says, Nevertheless, we, according to God's promise, look forward to new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are you looking forward to that? Okay. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, here it is, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Did you hear all that? That's some recognition right there. Peter calls Paul a beloved brother of the church. That really is the right hand of fellowship. Well, that was my left hand. The right hand of fellowship. But then Peter places the authority of Paul's letters on equal ground with all of the Old Testament prophets. Saying that untaught and unstable people twist Paul's writings as they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter is saying that all of Paul's writings are just as inspired and as authoritative as Moses's, Samuel's, David's, Isaiah's, Jeremiah's, Daniel's. You get the point. Peter understood that Paul was an apostle of Christ and a prophet of God. Is that recognition? Well, the Galatians need to get it straight, don't they? Yeah. So to be clear here, as Paul's making his argument in Galatians 1, he didn't learn the gospel from Peter. Peter recognized that it was revealed to Paul. Yeah. Paul didn't go there so that Peter could teach him anything. He was there sharing how Christ appeared to him, how he came to know the gospel by divine revelation, and how Christ appointed him as an apostle. Yeah. So Paul didn't stay with Peter to be taught He was there to be joined to the apostles as one of their peers. To be recognized as being among their ranks. Yeah. And the text goes on. It says, during his stay there, he's also with James, the half-brother of Jesus, who we know was an unbeliever all the way up until the resurrection of Jesus. I bet there were some good exchanges there. You know? Yeah. Now, Paul... Uh, he throws this in there that he, he didn't see any of the other apostles except for James, the half-brother of Jesus. Yeah. So I want to just address this with you real quick. Uh, you know, there, of course, there were originally 12 apostles, and then you know, Judas didn't make the cut in the end, right? Didn't go well for him. But apparently more apostles were appointed Uh, after Jesus ascended. Uh, So let me go through these real quick, just to clear it up with you. Uh, Matthias was chosen. 
by way of the apostles casting lots. I'm glad that tradition went away. Could you imagine the elders and I getting together and going, I don't really know about this one. <laughs> We're not even going to try it, by the way. That's Acts 1.26. It's not clear when James was appointed or recognized uh, as an apostle, uh, but it did happen sometime before Acts chapter 12, verse 17. Um, and then later his position was made clear among the apostles in Acts 15 at what we call the Jerusalem Council. It's very interesting. James sort of comes out of nowhere, and then he speaks with authority among all the apostles. And, and he goes, this is a decision I've come to. <laughs> Everybody goes, that's great. It's like, well, who's James? Acts 15, 13 through 21. Um, and he was among the apostles when they uh, collectively recognized Paul's apostleship, Galatians 2, 9, and then in Acts 15. Also, Barnabas is usually placed among the apostles. He's never clearly called an apostle, but he, he was certainly a man of authority. When a delegate was sent out to check on the affairs of the church in new places, an apostle always went. But when it happened in Antioch, they sent Barnabas. So there's interesting indication there. Uh, he had enough clout uh, with the apostles uh, that he was the one that brought Paul to them because they were all chicken. They were afraid of Paul, Acts 9, 27. Uh, Barnabas, Barnabas was sent out by the apostles to Antioch, as I said, Acts eleven twenty two. He became a prominent leader in, Ant in the Antioch church, Acts eleven twenty six 26 through 30. He was called a prophet, Acts 13, 1. And then when God, the Holy Spirit, separated Paul for the work of missionary journeys, Barnabas was appointed with him. It's interesting. Acts 13, 2. And then Acts 15, 12 uh, talks about Barnabas as a miracle worker. Interesting stuff. Of course, Paul, uh, he says, I was just born out of due season. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And the final question is, was Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was he an apostle? If he was, he was extremely humble about it. He never used that title. But he spoke with the authority of apostle. Okay? And he wrote, basically, as an apostle. Um, I'm not really sure about Jude completely. Um, but his writing comes to us authoritatively, whether it was under the um, supervision of Peter or whatever. If you read the book of Jude and you read uh, some of Peter's epistles, uh, much of it looks like a carbon copy. Um, but anyway, so there you have it. You can do more research on it. Uh, there was a total of 15 or 16 apostles. and um, yeah. But as we said a few weeks ago, there are no... Apostles of that caliber alive today that have the authority that the original had, and they certainly do not have the authority to write Scripture. Amen? Amen? Okay, stay away from those people. Stay away from them. They're dangerous. So when Paul visited Jerusalem for the first time as a Christian, uh, he stayed with Peter. He spent time with James. And what is interesting is that when Paul was in Jerusalem for those 15 days, as we know Paul, he was stirring up trouble. That's just what Paul did. Okay? 
Uh, Acts 9.28 says, so Paul was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Uh, Coming in and going out is an Old Testament idiom of a soldier who goes out of the city to fight its battles and then to come back in victory. But Paul's method of combat was preaching the gospel. It wasn't wielding a sword. Acts 9.29 says that Paul was preaching the name of the Lord Jesus and disputing against the Hellenists. The Hellenists. The Hellenists were faithful Jews that had been raised outside of Israel. And Paul himself was a Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, hundreds of miles north of Jerusalem. But the irony of Paul's exchange with these men is that these are the guys that Paul sided with to have Stephen executed in Acts 7. Paul has come full circle with his life. And I'm sure that there's an important memory in all of that. So Paul was now preaching the name of Jesus to those who formerly helped him try and destroy the name of Jesus. It's very intentional. Okay? But just as these men turned on Stephen, they attempted to kill Paul. And as soon as the brethren found out about it, Acts 9.30, they smuggled Paul out of Jerusalem to the coastal city of Caesarea, and they sent him back home. And it says in Acts that after that, there was peace. (laughs) Ah. And this is at least the second time that Paul was smuggled out of a city. Uh, He was smuggled out of another city in a basket out of a window down the wall of the city. Yeah, Not a little Easter basket. It was a a big basket. Okay. Yeah, And it's, of course, just the beginning of a number of assassination attempts on his life. Let's move on to Galatians 1, 20 through 24. Paul says, Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, that is, after I left after I was smuggled out of Jerusalem, I went to the regions of, uh, sorry, of Syria and Cilicia, that's where he's from, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. And he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So after Paul's visit to Jerusalem, his subsequent escape, word got out to the churches of Judea that not only was Paul out of commission as this zealous Pharisee, but he was now preaching the gospel that they held so tightly to. They were saying that he who once tried to destroy the faith was now the great defender of it. And they were glorifying God. I just love that so much. Let me give you one more piece of history that fits into Paul's first visit to Jerusalem as a Christian. Because I think it's important. Paul thought that his testimony among the Jews would have a positive impact for the gospel. But the Hellenists tried to kill him. And this is actually something the Lord warned him about when he was there on that visit. He was in the temple praying. And he had a vision of Christ who told him, he says, 
Paul, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So then Paul said, and what he means is I, I argued with Jesus. Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. They've got to listen to me. I'm important. My testimony is the testimony. And but Peter was just a fisherman. What did he know? I was a Bible scholar. I was brought up under Gamaliel. I, I have something to contribute, especially in this context. Then Jesus said to him, get out, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Acts 22, 18 through 21. And then after that, the disciples smuggled Paul out of Jerusalem. Interesting stuff. And I think it's super important. How interesting that Paul was least effective with those he thought he would be most effective in fact, about 20 years after this vision, Paul was in Jerusalem again, and he thought that things had changed. And he's not in the temple this time, he's just right outside the temple in Acts 22, trying to share his testimony again to a group of Jews who tried to kill him again. <laughs> Jesus wasn't right the first time. <laughs> yeah. Paul was least effective with those he thought he would be the most effective, but he was most effective where Jesus told him he would be effective. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Paul wanted so badly to reach his own people. He told the Romans that I, I would that I would be accursed like those Judaizers for the sake of my nation being saved. He really wanted to reach his own people, but it wasn't God's desire for him. Paul was an apostle. He was appointed by the risen Christ himself, but he was not an apostle to the Jews. He was the great apostle to the Gentiles, as he was to these Galatians. Now, I think that in all of that, there is a good piece of application for us. I think that it, it almost sounds cliché, to say you should go where God has called you. But if you want to be effective for the glory of God, you're going to have to go where he leads you. I know that in our culture in the West, we've got things so figured out when it comes to outreach and evangelism and church ministry. And you need to go, you know, we think, well, youth are the best at reaching youth. Not in the Bible. Because we could say Jews are best at reaching Jews, not for Paul. For Paul, it was the great Jew is the best at reaching Greeks, reaching Romans, reaching pagans. The one who had the strictest aversion to paganism was Paul. And God sent him among the pagans. So we often think that because we can identify with people, that that's where God would lead us to reach people. And maybe you've thought that, but there's no fruit. Maybe you were wrong, 
and you weren't very attentive to Jesus' voice. Or maybe you were attentive, but you argued like Paul in the temple. No, Jesus, you got it wrong. If anybody's going to reach these people, it's going to be me, because I'm so valuable. Because I know, I know where they're, they're coming from. And Jesus would say, I don't care. My calling in your life is more powerful than anything else. I will re- you will reach whoever I tell you you will reach. And I'll shut you down anyplace else. Okay. Now, I, I've known many great Bible teachers. And they've gone to certain communities thinking that they would plant a church and be successful, and they bombed it. And then they bombed it in another one. And then they went to another community, and it's just going amazing. Same thing has happened to missionaries. They go to one place. Of course, it's all the same message, remember? I mean, if Paul would say, let somebody be accursed for teaching a little different message, I think the, the gospel message is clear. It's the same message, and it has to be preached the same way. But because of God's calling in your life, it'll have an impact differently on different people. I think the Proverbs say something about lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, commit it to the Lord and he'll, he'll direct your path. Yeah, I think that's really important information. <laughs> You know, one of the stories I love, how many guys have read Harvest? It's kind of a history of the, 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 the Calvary Chapel pastors, the movement, and those who came out of different things and everything. It's a great story. It has a testimony of multiple guys in it. But one of the things that I love about the Jesus movement is that, you know, Chuck Smith was the most unlikely person to reach the hippies who did it, by the way, in a suit and tie on the beach. Yeah, he was straight-laced. He was a boy raised in a conservative home, evangelical church. And his churches did okay wherever he went. But when he heard God's voice tell him to go to the hippies who he despised, guess what? We had one of the largest church movements in America. And you guys know some of the names of these guys, Greg Laurie and Skip Heitzig and Mike McIntosh. Loads of guys that were stoned out of their minds. And God used Chuck Smith to reach those people. I just think it's great. Yeah. So when it comes to reaching the lost, when it comes to applying ourselves in ministry, we need to lean less on our own thinking because a calling is in it is an important thing. And wherever God calls you is where you'll be most effective. And it doesn't mean megachurch. Uh, we don't measure success by numbers necessarily. Okay. But also, not only will you be most effective, uh, you'll glorify God the most. You'll maximize his glory. And that's really what it's about. Pleasing him and living for his glory. So I just wanted to bring that as a thought to you guys. Um, Next week, we'll continue into chapter 2 with the rest of Paul's defense and his apostolic authority. And we might get into his rebuke of Peter. 
which really is the pinnacle in Paul's argument of his authority. If he can rebuke Peter, he has authority from Christ. Amen? Okay. Well, go ahead and stand up, and I'll get you out of here. I lost track of time there a little bit. I don't even know what. Whatever. You guys are the best. You want me to hold that kid? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we love you. And we're thankful, Lord, for all that's been revealed in the Word. We thank you that it, it, it's just all the historical facts come together to reveal a tremendous truth to us. And, um, and I just pray that Lord, we wouldn't just be informed this morning, but we would be encouraged. Uh, not just regarding Paul's apostleship, which most of us recognize anyhow, but that, Lord, you have a calling for each of us in some context, with some application. And some of us need to fast and pray to open our ears up. Some of us need to be better listeners. And uh, some of us are discouraged because we've been, we just feel dry wherever we're at. And it may be that you've moved on and we haven't moved with you. And so I pray that we wouldn't be like Paul and argue with you or state our case before you, but we would just listen and, um, and serve, Lord, your vision for our life and for those that we would minister to. So, Lord, thank you. We love you. and Thank you for my church family. I do pray, Lord, and trust that you will lavish your grace upon them, that they might live well and worthy of your call. So bless him, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.